If you would, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Genesis. I want to read a little bit out of uh, Genesis 18, just to kind of set the tone. We still are in the last of the weapons in the whole armor of God in Ephesians, but let me just read you something from the book of Genesis. It's a conversation between Abraham and God, and I want us just to think about it. So it's uh, Genesis chapter 18. That's the very first book of the Bible. We're going to start with verse 16. And the men rose up from thence and looked toward Sodom. And Abraham Abraham went with them to bring them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord and do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham which he has spoken of him. And the Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, And because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which has come upon me. And if not, I will know. And the men turned their faces from thence and went toward Sodom, but Abraham stood yet before the Lord. And Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure there be fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place for the fifty righteous that are therein? That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the, with the wicked, and the righteous should be as and that the righteous should be as the wicked that be far from thee shall not the judge of the earth do right and the lord said if i find in sodom 50 righteous within the city then i will spare all the place for their sakes and abraham answered and said behold now I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, but I am but dust and ashes. Peradventure there shall lack five of the fifty righteous. Wilt thou destroy the city for the lack of five? And he said, If I find forty-five, which is the lack of five, I will not destroy it. And he spake unto him yet again and said, Peradventure there shall be forty found there. And he said, I will not do it for forty's sake. And he said unto him, O Lord, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Peradventure shall thirty be found. And he said, I will not do it if I find thirty there. And he said, Behold, I have taken upon me to speak upon the Lord. Peradventure shall there be twenty found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for twenty's sake. 
And he said, Let me not the Lord be angry, and I will speak yet but, one, but, but this once. Peradventure ten shall be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for ten's sake. And the Lord went his way as soon as he had left communion with Abraham, and Abraham returned unto his place. Let's pray. Dear God, as we're here looking at this amazing dialogue between Abraham and you, Lord, let us glean from that that we should be children of prayer. Lord, we should be praying to you always and forever. Lord, as we go through the Scripture, Lord, speak through me the words you need me to say. In Jesus' name, amen. So go ahead and jump over to Ephesians. That's where our verse is at. Ephesians chapter 6. So we're in the 18th verse, and we will look together at the Spirit of God in the placings of a hand, and, it's, and this is a, a weapon. We've talked about that prayer. We talked about the weapon last week of being the sword of the Spirit, the, the Word of God. And today, we want to talk about praying or prayer. So let's read the verse that we'll, we'll uh, focus on. This is the book of Ephesians, the New, chapter, New Testament chapter book of Ephesians, chapter 6, verse 18. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto for all perseverance and supplications for all saints. Now, Paul is urging and extorting the Ephesians to do something, but yet I want to just grab a couple of more verses and show you that this was Paul's lifestyle as well. He's not telling the church at Ephesus to do something he's not doing. So if you just glance back to chapter 1 of Ephesians, verses 15 and 16, it says this, Therefore I also, talking about Paul, Paul's talking to the church at Ephesus, he says, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And then a little bit later in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, he says, And for this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul led a life of prayer and he's trying to urge the church at Ephesus to put on the whole armor of God and last but not least this offensive weapon of prayer and that he was a man of prayer himself. So we know that we should pray for everything. The Bible's plain on that. But we a lot of times, our prayer is a preoccupation of what's going on in our life. If you, if you listen to yourself, a lot of times we like to self-orient our prayer about our needs. And it, a lot of times it's a bullet point of wants. Okay? So I want us to make sure that in, in all prayer we have four different alls. Praying always with all prayer watching with all perseverance, and making supplication for all saints. That's sort of the recipe of what the prayer should be to, to be an effective prayer. So it ought to be really a, a tremendous encouragement because what I'm going to put before us 
is going to seem a little daunting, but I want us to realize something. And, and Paul wrote this to the church at Corinth, and we'll get into a little bit more. I'll read the whole thing later. But a little snippet of that verse is, in, in 1 Corinthians, it says, For now we see through a glass darkly. And that's really all of us on planet Earth today. We see things through the Bible and we see things around us darkly. And by that, we don't see the whole picture. We are a finite being. We live in a space and time. In other words, whatever's going on at, at, at we'll say across the street, I have no knowledge because I'm here, right? So, so we have a finite uh, being about us, so we tend to see things in just our perspective. So Paul says in, in the book of Corinthians, and, I, and like I said, I'll read the whole thing, but he says, but for now, we see as in a glass, as that we're looking through a glass that's got like Coca-Cola in it or something. You can barely see through it. And not at least when it comes to prayer. What is it? There, there's really a mystery to prayer, if, you, if you're honest with yourself. There's really a mystery to prayer. We have the idea that, and, and Satan's really good about making sure, if he can, that Christians don't pray. He will go out of his way to keep you from praying. Have you ever, don't raise your hands, please, but has questions like this ever flipped through your mind? Why do I even bother to pray? The Lord knows what He's going to do. Or, why do I bother to pray at all? How could I possibly make a difference in anything He does? Have you ever had that kind of pass through? That's Satan trying to get you not to pray. Not to pray. We have this, and the problem is we try to have, we have this perception of God that's totally wrong. But what, what is my perception? Okay, I, I'll use me as an example. My perception of me is, well, if I make a decision, I may rethink that decision and make another one and improve upon it, right? We do that as humans. We may make a plan. The plan goes through. We look back and say, when we do that again, we're going to do something different. So, so we tend to think of things in that light. In other words, we won't, we won't get it right. I hardly ever get it right the first time. I'm just honest. Do y'all... Some of y'all may, but I hardly ever get it right the first time. A lot of times, it's the second or third try at it that it ever gets anywhere close to being right. But I want to tell you something. God doesn't work that way. And aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? God, through His omnipotent and omnipotence and His knowledge of all, His control of all, never makes a mistake. His judgments and His outpouring of what happens to a world is just and it's not ever can be challenged because it's right. He never makes poor judgments. He never has to go back and do it again. None of that is in God's equation, even though it's like us. 
Now the book of Numbers, when, when Moses was writing, Numbers 23, 19 is a real good verse. It says, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and hath he, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? So God doesn't change his mind. His plan throughout history has not changed, has not altered, has not been modified, has not been tweaked. It is still the same. So if you think about something that James wrote, I'm going to read you one more. James chapter 1, verse 17, it says this. It says, every good gift, every good and perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Some of you may have been wondering why we read Genesis first. But, but let, me, let me back up there and just, uh, I hope everyone understands the pretext of what that dialogue was. God had already um, decided to do judgment to Sodom and Gomorrah, that great city of, of whoredom, and, 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 and Abraham was trying to get him to, to bring some out. And if you know the story, it's an amazing story. You should read it. But what I want to focus on is what he said in verse 17, and the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham this thing which I do? Don't get the idea that when Abraham was dialoguing with the Lord that just so happens there was going to be 50, 45, 30, 20, or even 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah. Don't think there was. Because then God would have said, Oh, well, there's 10. I won't do it. But we know the story. He destroyed it. So how do we do this? Abraham really comes, if, if, you, if, if you read through what I read in Genesis 18, Abraham starts out with a big number. There's lots. And then, then God said, nope, won't do it for 50. How about five less? Nope, won't do it for 45. And then you can tell Abraham's coming to that realization of the true condition of Sodom and Gomorrah. He said, well, how about 10? He said, I won't do it for 10. But he did it because there won't even 10. So God had already determined what he was going to do. That's what verse 17 said, And the Lord said, Shall I hide this thing I'm going to do from Abraham? So Abraham comes in, you think about it, in Genesis 18, he comes in and tries to, to, to do some intercessory prayer for the people at Sodom and Gomorrah. But, at, but as he talks with the Lord, he understands. The number keeps getting smaller and smaller. It doesn't say... Now, Abraham could have never altered whether God was going to destroy that place or not. But by his intercession, Abraham brought an understanding to himself that he knew that if he could just find ten people, that he wouldn't do it 
but there wasn't 10 people and that they truly needed the judgment of God. If 10 had to be rescued, then it would account, then you would have counted that as an, a prayer answered by Abraham. But God not only ordains the end of what he's going to do, but he also ordains the means of how he does it. So that if ten righteous were to be saved, it would have been on account that God had stimulated Abraham's prayer down to ten so that his prayer could be answered. Do you understand where I'm going with that? He didn't, but that's where it was going. So that one's sort of hard to understand, but let's move to a New Testament one. I'll just do one more example. It's the one of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Let, let, let's look at that one. That's in John 11. So, let, let me. Abraham's intercession by doing as he asked, as he executes the inevitability of his judgment was just an exercise in Abraham saying, if there was, if there was, if there was, and God was saying, sure, sure, sure. Unanswered comment, there's not, there's not, there's not. But how about Jesus in the New Testament? This is John 11, verse 35. If you like Bible trivia, that's the shortest verse of the Bible. John eleven thirty-five. Does anybody know what it is? Jesus wept, two words. Shortest, that's a good trivia. Shortest, shortest verse in the Bible. So why did Jesus weep? Uh, he, people had come to him. If you know the story, you need to go back and read it. But Jesus sort of tarried for a while and it sort of agitated the people around. But anyway, he had come to the temple where Laz or the tomb where Lazarus was and he wept. Verse 38 says also that he was groaning in himself because of the grave. So think about it. Jesus was definitely moved by Lazarus' death. God the Father had chosen to raise Lazarus to answer Jesus' prayer. You understand what I'm saying? Notice it. Jesus says this, He speaks out loud, and He speaks out loud so that everybody hears Him. This is John 11, around 41 to 43. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, he verbally said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I know that thou hearest me always. But because of the people that stand by me, I say it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me, and then thus hast spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus! Come out! God the Father chose to raise Lazarus in answer to Jesus' prayer. There would have been no other way. That'll keep you up late at night, thinking about that. Think about that. God had ordained the end, namely raising up of Lazarus, and God had ordained the means to the end, namely the prayer of Jesus. Consider, consider the eternal purpose of God. This is, this is kind of a, 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 a blowback. This is Ephesians 1. Think about this. This is a very succinct statement. It's Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 6. It's, it's considered God's eternal purpose. 
according as he hath faith, let me do that again, For, uh, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated unto us the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, and to the praise and the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us acceptable in the Beloved. Think about that. Ephesians really begins here in verses 4 through 6 with the eternal purpose of God. That's really His purpose statement, if you will. And, and if any of you know your Bibles very well, the, the answer to that statement is found in Revelation, right? Revelation 7, 9. Right? After this, John's writing this down. After this, verses 1 through 8, whatever this is. I beheld, John saw, I beheld and lo, a great what multitude, which no man could number of all the nations and kindred and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the land, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. Y'all, that is God's eternal purpose. If you ever wondered why God put you on earth, it's for that. That's what it is. That's His purpose. And how does He achieve that purpose? How do the prayers of God's people intersect with the purposes of God? Think about it. It is simple. We're going to have, we're going to, we're going to have that company that no one can number regardless of anything else. No. Otherwise, why would Jesus told His disciples this? This is Matthew 9, 38. He said, Pray ye therefore that the Lord of the harvest, that He will send forth laborers unto the harvest. So we have this prayer by Jesus to the disciples out loud for everyone to hear that He should be raising up servants of God. So that begs a question. Are you praying for your children? Are you praying for young leaders? Are you praying for them to be risen up and following God's steps and raise them up as children of God? So what we have... We're raising up servants of God before God. We're raising up people that will declare that the Word of God from the hearing of the Word of God, and, and by that we make it and we repeat it and others learn from us because of our life and because of our walk with God. They see Jesus in us, in our, in our ways, and come to that saving knowledge of grace and God has ordained before the beginning of time that that's the way it should work. You would think about with technology the way it is, it could just be an email to everyone and say, you know, get saved. Do this and you're all right. But God, before the beginning of time, ordained that this is the way He's going to do it. And we have to, as believers try to be the people of prayer to help usher His kingdom in 
with all the people that need to be there. And y'all, that's a mystery. It, it, that's one of those things that when Paul said in Corinthians that right now we're looking through that glass dimly, I, I don't understand all that. But one day we're going to see it the way it truly is and we'll understand it. But for right now, that, that verse I keep quoting, the first part of it is 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. It says, For now I see as the glass darkly, but then, face to face, know I now in part, but then shall I know even also as I am known. And that's us in heaven. That's us in heaven. So now we know that we really don't understand everything that's going on. There is a cosmic war that wages around us that we're not physically able to see and we're not physically able to stop or to run away from that our only answer is prayer. So the, the prayer is so necessary. The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews eleven six it says, but without faith, it is impossible to please God. So what does that mean? It begs a question. Do you please God? It says, but without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is the rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Hebrews eleven six. Let me read it without stopping. But without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. So what does that mean? So our prayers really are an exercise and an expression of faith. Of faith. When people hear people talking about faith in like really generic terms or when they talk about prayer and they hear that the lie of the Bible says that God is made from the foundation of the world one God and one mediator between God and men and that's the man Jesus. That's in 1 Timothy. God has made the provision so that God the Father hears the prayers that's given up in the name of Jesus to Him. And God hears those prayers. We're, he hears the prayers that are quickened by us through the, 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 the moving and the churning of the Holy Spirit within our lives as we walk and talk and pray every day. Think about it this way. One of the greatest evidences that a person, man or woman, is actually in Christ is that they actually pray. Is that they actually pray. Because when we pray, we talk to God in prayer. It could be specific times. It could be all the time. It could be sporadic. But we pray. They, we may, on some ongoing platform, have a dialogue with Him there in any given day. The writer of Hebrews summarizes it perfect. This is Hebrews 5, 7. <clears throat> it says, it's talking about Jesus. 
who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with strong crying and tears unto him that he was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. So the writer of Hebrews, excuse me, <coughs> the writer of Hebrews here in 5 7 is talking about the necessary of prayer and how in the Garden of Gethsemane Jesus was praying in the flesh over to the point we know that's recorded for us that, that the sweat come out as blood. So it, it, it has to be that prayer is not an option, it is a necessity. So we have something about what actually is praying. What actually is praying? The activity of it. It's by the Spirit. You have to pray in the Spirit. What does that actually mean? When we get down to praying, I'm not necessarily talking about a corporate prayer we have out here. I'm talking about when you get on your one-in-one -one with God, I'm talking about a prayer that you do that is between you and God. It could be driving down the road. I wouldn't recommend closing your eyes. But I, it could be driving down the road. It could be in a, you know, in your desk at work. It could be in a recliner at home. It could be in your bed. Whatever it is that you do to pray to God, we need to make sure that we're praying in the Spirit. What does that mean? That means that we're looking inside. We're at the purpose of God. If you pray in the Spirit, you may actually give a couple of bullet lists Lord, you need to fix this and this and that. You may do stuff like that, but ultimately you're going to cry out for the lost. The lost in your family, if there's any. The lost in your uh, work group or your peers, if there's any. And then just the lost in the world and for the condition of our world. I, I just don't answer, but it is our duty as Christians to pray for our president. You do know that, don't you? Not to pray that he has a heart attack and dies and somebody else takes his place, but that God can use him. That God can use him for his glory. Because why? God put him there. Mm -hmm. God, God ordains the minute details. You ever heard somebody say the devil's in the details? That's a bald-faced lie. God's in the details, y'all. God's in the details. Just think about Lazarus again. If you know the story, if you don't, here's a, here's a wide overview. Jesus was in a nearby town doing what he was doing. He got word that Lazarus was sick. He tarried. He didn't go to us three days. Lazarus had been dead three days. There was no doubt Lazarus was dead. And when he came, they tried to talk him out of it, right? They said, he stinks, right? I heard you, Buster. They stink. So, so he was getting ripe. There ain't no way to do that. The body's gone. Decay set in. And Jesus prays that beautiful prayer. 
Father, I do this. I talk out loud so they can hear me that they believe, that they may believe that you sent me. And then he hollered, Lazarus, come out. And if you, if you read the story, he came out wrapped up in all that stuff. They wrapped him up and he said, loosen him up and give him something to eat. Think about it. We need to make sure that we're praying folks. We need to make sure we have a prayer life that is saturated in prayer. What does this do for you? Now, I'm not saying you have to do this. I'm not saying that. But I know a, a grand old man is in heaven now. He used to keep a notebook with everybody's name that was added to the prayer list. And he would pray for them. And he put a check mark when he prayed for them so he remembered he prayed for them. And when whatever happened, they got either better or went to heaven, he marked a date on that prayer. It was a, it was a notebook, and when he filled it up, he'd start another one. Mr. Kendrick had a prayer life. I'm not saying everybody needs a prayer life like that, but that is a real good model to follow. That's a real good model to follow. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he, he lived a long time ago, said this, If all my knowledge of God does not lead me to prayer, then something's wrong somewhere. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, If all my knowledge of God, he says, What I know of God, what has God revealed Himself to me through His Scripture, what has been revealed to me, if that does not lead me to prayer, something's wrong. Something's wrong. Have you ever found yourself that you've bowed your knees before the Father? Do you pray more for maybe the concerns of the congregation, the people that sit with you? Maybe for the needs of society? For the tragic circumstances of the immoral world that we live? Do we pray for what God wants us to pray about? Do we have the kingdom in our mind? Or do we just have the immediacy of our family and our, our plot in life at that moment? Picture this. It's not waiting for the enabling of the Spirit in order to start praying. It's to pray in the Spirit. you got to make sure... A lot of people say, you know, I'm not smart enough to start praying or I'm not spiritual enough to pray. But Ephesians tells us that we should be filled with the Spirit. How are we filled with the Spirit? Colossians 3.16, it says, Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts, to the Lord. That's Colossians 3.16. So our prayers really are both fueled by the outpouring of the Spirit and it's framed really by the Word of God. So praying in the Spirit, in a nutshell, 
is we ask God for what we know is pleasing to Him. And what is His plan from all the foundation of the world to grab those that are elected of Him you know, Spurgeon said one time about this, about the election, he said, you know, if everybody had a check mark on the back of their neck that you could see, then you would know who you talked to, right? You would know who to work with to get saved if they were, had that little check on the back of their mind, on the back of their head. He said, but because they don't, we don't know who's going to get saved. So we tell everyone that we see about Jesus. We tell them all. But don't forget, when you pray, make sure you pray in the name of Jesus. You know, we need to be people of prayer. We need not to be ashamed to pray. I'm not talking about, out, I'm not talking about necessarily in public. But you think about this. When we do an invitation, which we're about to do, and people sit there, they, they've already raised their hand earlier and said... You know, I got concerns. There's things that are on my heart that I'm raising my hand before the Lord saying, I got, I got a problem, right? I got something I want to pray about. I got something that's heavy on my heart. And then the invitation comes and, and everybody stands there like their feet are glued to the floor. Do we not believe in the prayer if people get around this altar and pray, y'all, things can happen. A church that prays together grows. A church that doesn't pray together stays cliquish. They say distance. But when your problem becomes the church's problem, and my problem becomes the church's problem, and we get up here together collectively and pray to God for that, for the uplifting of His kingdom, for the uplifting of the people in the community, for the congregation, for the pastor, his wife, for, the, for everything about a church, and actually start putting them before the Lord on a regular basis, God's not going to move. Think about it. To pray... In Jesus' name is to pray in the Spirit. To pray in the Spirit means that you make sure you know what He wants. We've read that. He wants people saved. He wants the hurt to be helped. And He wants us to be the pillows and the feet and the hands to make that happen. And I just wonder, do we have really something on our mind today? Or do we raise out of habit? Do we raise our hand out of habit? Let us pray. Oh God, today, Lord, let us start anew. Lord, let us not to be ashamed to come before you and pray. Lord, the prayer of so many people can change a community. Lord, I pray that we become that church of prayer and that our life will reflect a life of prayer. 
a life of belief in prayer. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.